Hello, everyone, and welcome to Saving Minds, the podcast that uncovers the best of what's new in the search for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease treatments. I'm Shanti Skippington. And I'm Dr. Elliot Goldstein. And we're your hosts. Uh, Today, we're very pleased to be welcoming a special guest, uh, Dr. Sharon Cohen. Welcome, Sharon. We're glad you're here. Thank you, Shanti. Wonderful to be here with you. Sharon is a clinician and a clinical trials investigator, and she's focused her career on understanding and caring for people with Alzheimer's disease. She is currently the medical director and principal investigator for Toronto Memory Program, which is a medical facility for dementia care and research. And she just returned from CTAD, which stands for Clinical Trials on Alzheimer's Disease. Uh, This is an important conference that happened last week, um, and it's focused 100% on Alzheimer's disease uh, therapies in progress. And this one was uniquely important because last Thursday on December 5th, Biogen released additional data for its phase three candidate, aducanumab. Uh, Now, if you've been following along, you'll know that uh, Biogen had canceled its program for aducanumab in March and then revived it in October. At the CTAD conference, Sharon was a key opinion leader on Biogen's panel to discuss the significance of this additional data that Biogen released. And she's gonna join us here today to share her perspectives and her view of the other hopeful things that came out of the conference. So Sharon, Elliot here, we we really are thrilled you're joining us and particularly after such a busy week at CTAD. Uh, We're eager to hear your perspective on Biogen's news. Uh, But before diving into the recent CTAD news, which we're all excited to hear your view on, would you briefly summarize your and Toronto Memory Program trial experience in Alzheimer's disease, including aducanumab? Sure, I'd be happy to. I've been a researcher in Alzheimer's disease since the 1990s. Um, I was a clinician dealing in the trenches with patients and their families and their problems in Alzheimer's disease since I graduated from medical school in 1986, but there just had to be a better way. So I really needed to embrace research. And if we fast forward to today, I've been involved in most of the major multinational clinical trials in Alzheimer's pharmacologic therapy. So, you know, over 100 trials, over, you know, close to 150 different major phase three programs that started in the 1990s with symptom approaches, leading to approval of some symptomatic treatments, the cholinesterase inhibitors and memantine. And we studied in clinical trials many other symptom approaches that didn't pan out. And then moving in the the 2000s to disease-modifying trial designs and heavily focused on anti-amyloid treatments initially, requiring infusion centers and PET, PET scans, and then more recently moving into anti-tau therapies as well. Um, And I guess uh, another recent development has been the advent of prevention studies, taking healthy people who are at risk for Alzheimer's and trying to keep them healthy. So we've seen all of the different iterations of clinical trial programs, and it's been a pleasure to to learn along with my colleagues in the field. Well, th- th- thank you, Sharon. Boy, what an incredible background. It really is a delight to have you here. You. So um, 
Uh, you're welcome. As Shanti stated in March 2019, a futility analysis prematurely halted the Biogen Aducanumab program. However, on December 5th at the CTAD meeting that you've just come from, uh, Biogen provided additional analyses to support the conclusion that the high dose, 10 milligrams per kilogram, the high dose long duration aducanumab exposure can modify uh, Alzheimer's disease, the disease process itself, and provide clinical be benefit. So, so let's get started. Can you give us an overview of what Biogen shared at CTAD and, and why is it significant? Sure, with pleasure. So Biogen shared the design of their phase three program, the two trials, large uh, multinational trials that together enrolled over 3,000 participants. They discussed the amendments that ended up being very important in allowing more individuals later on in the study to uh, increase their dose of aducanumab. And then they presented the results both of the futility analysis data and then the larger data set. So it was important to realize that even though um, the data set collected for the futility analysis included data up to December of 2018, the study continued to progress with people being dosed right through to March 2019 when the futility analysis was reported. But then the additional three months of data comprised the final data set, and this is what Biogen was able to present at CTAD last week. Okay, so a bit of a complex uh, a trajectory, if you like. Um, but uh, uh, overall, what was your sense of the data? What so it was very complicated, but it was also very clear that of these two identical phase three programs, the patients uh, that were enrolled were individuals who were mild in their disease. They shared the same baseline characteristics. They either had prodromal Alzheimer's disease, which is the mild cognitive impairment stage, and they are fully independent in their functioning, or they have mild Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and still a fairly good quality of life. And these individuals all had PET scans that showed they had sufficient amyloid accumulation to warrant the underlying um, cause of their cognitive symptoms being attributed to Alzheimer's. What the data showed in the uh, final data set for the EMERGE study, one of the two studies, is that this study was clearly positive on its pre-specified primary outcome, which was a scale called the CDR, sum of boxes, and this is a combination of a cognitive scale and a functional scale, and that individuals in the EMERGE study over an 18-month period had their disease progression slowed by about 25%. So a significant slowing by about a quarter of the usual disease progression. Even more interesting, on all of the secondary outcome measures that were pre-planned, so that these were not post hoc analyses for eMERGE, all of the secondary outcome measures, which were other cognitive and functional scales, the results were statistically significant and showed disease slowing. And for me, the most impressive of these was a 40% reduction in disease progression on a functional scale, meaning a scale that looks at how people are doing day-to-day -day with banking, shopping, driving, traveling, the kinds of activities that our patients and families are concerned about. They're more concerned about those things than their, their memory test scores. If they can function, then they feel they're doing well. So 
preventing people from losing those abilities is, is very important. Um, what the study also showed, and this has emerged, this positive study, was that the biomarkers they looked at to see whether behind the symptoms and the cognitive and functional scales, do we see that the biology of the disease is being impacted in the way we want um, by aducanumab. And yes, we saw that amyloid was being reduced on PET scans. We saw that tau, also a toxic protein in Alzheimer's disease, its um, levels were being reduced. And so we have the biomarkers, the secondary outcomes, and the primary outcome measure, all positive in the right direction. And this, I think people don't often realize, is something we never see in Alzheimer's disease in a large phase three trial. So this is very important. What makes the data extra complicated, though, is that the sister study, which enrolled the identical patient population, showed negative results. And how do we explain this? And that's, that's a big challenge. The amendments that came into play uh, during the enrollment of the study appear to have differentially affected one study over the other, with those in the positive study having more individuals who are able to achieve the high dose of aducanumab. And dose seems to matter quite a bit, and consistency of dosing, the period of time that one is dosed. So when we look at, or when Biogen presented, the subset of individuals in the negative trial that received the highest dose, 10 milligrams per kilogram per month, for the longest period of time, that subgroup showed similar benefit to those in the positive study. So Sharon, you were on the panel that Biogen had assembled, uh, the panel of experts, to comment on these data because it was a little complex and it could have been difficult to understand. But your quotes, I personally felt, were some of the most compelling and meaningful for patients. And, and one of the words that you used was that the data was exhilarating. And we love this. Can you, can you share why you felt that the data were exhilarating? Sure. The results that we saw in the eMERGE study, as I mentioned, were a first. We have been through, as a scientific community and our patients right along with us, we've been through so many failed phase three studies. And to have a study that's not somewhat positive or positive on some outcome measures, but not on others, but to be clearly positive the way the eMERGE study was is not something that we see in phase three trials. So that by itself is reason to be excited. Um, for me, um, you know, you can have a positive trial, but is it really helping people? And when I see that people are able to regain activities of daily living that are meaningful to them, this, these are our patients talking, yes, if I can work for longer, if I can drive for longer, that means something, then I feel we've gone beyond looking at statistical significance uh, p-values and, uh, you know, numerical changes on particular scales. And we're looking at a very significant impact over 18 months of a very long disease. And I also feel that when you look at the, um, the lines between the placebo-treated and the active-treated high-dose group in eMERGE, you are seeing 
that the lines are continuing to diverge. And it may be in this long disease, if we continue to treat beyond 18 months, we would even have more of an effect on slowing the disease. So while we don't have the data going out longer than that, and one doesn't want to presume too much, I think that there's lots of reason to be very excited um, and to feel we have something meaningful for people. Well, Sharon, certainly sounds encouraging, especially from, you know, your experienced clinical standpoint. Uh, Two questions in one sort of here, kind of about the mood and, you know, people's sort of attitude. So what what was the overall mood at CTAD following the release of these data? Your mood seems quite upbeat and enthusiastic, which uh, we share. But some reporters have suggested that enthusiasm for the data were were rather mixed, you know, Um, not quite sure is this really a big change or not. Um, What's your opinion on this? And uh, what do you feel? Was there mixed enthusiasm? What, what, What might that all be about? I think you're right, Elliot. There was mixed enthusiasm, but I think it was leaning towards the positive. And as the days progressed at CTAD, people had more of a chance to digest the complex data set. And I heard so many people saying regarding other um, sponsors' programs, well, did you get the dose right? Did you go high enough? Did you go long enough? So this idea that dose matters and duration matters was really filtering through. And it was very interesting to see how other people were interrogating uh-huh, other, yeah. other drug programs to see if they had really gotten the, the optimal uh, responses they should. Um, the, the proportion of naysayers was a lot less than I expected. Of course, people have to do some mental gymnastics going from a futility analysis than to, you know, a planned submission to the FDA and filing. You have to wonder what all went on in between. But I think Biogen has a very cogent argument about dose and how the amendments impacted the the negative study, the engaged study. And we'll we'll see. Um, I've think that there is cautious optimism, and that's a good thing for our field. And of course, we we hope that only drugs will be approved that are going to be helpful, not just, uh, you know, that a regulator would approve a drug because there's an unmet need. Obviously, we need good drugs. But I think people are feeling that this is, as Steve Salloway said, a foothold. You know, if this drug helps, it's not a cure, but if it can slow disease, it's a beginning. Yeah. And, you know, um, but based on the feedback we've had, uh, those of us who were present at the CTAD and then in the press and, you know, with our contacts, et cetera, it seems that at least some, if not many in the Alzheimer's community have, you know, shown some praise for Biogen for reviving aducanumab, its candidate, in other words, doing the right thing, if you like, but not necessarily, you know, a praise for the candidate itself, but because this paves the way for next generation candidates for other therapies. Um, You touched on that a little bit just in your last answer. Could you elaborate a bit more? What's your perspective on this? Sure. I think, you know, one has to be careful in trial design. Having a pre-planned futility analysis is in general a good idea because you don't want to waste uh, financial or patient resources and time continuing to develop a drug if you have signals earlier on that uh, you're unlikely to be successful. However, when you have protocol amendments that substantially change the trial and you make futility decisions on the first 50% of your data, assuming it's going to be representative for the full data set, then you can get into the difficult situation that Biogen was in. I think we're fortunate 
that they continued to analyze the larger data set and came back and said, you know, the futility analysis did not predict the final data set, and here is what the data shows. So, you know, in terms of planning trials and interim analyses, we have some lessons to learn about how maybe to be more adaptive when you have protocol amendments that are going to impact a futility analysis. Um, but I, I also think that, you know, we want clear answers, whether something works or doesn't work. We need to rigorously interrogate the data to understand it so that even from a failed trial, we can learn a great deal. And if we have a trial that has some successes, how do we build on that? And I, I did feel at CTAD that the Alzheimer's research community is building. We are not just doing one trial at a time. Uh, we are trying to learn the most we can, including from the Biogen trial, to see how that can inform other trials. Now, that's a really interesting comment. Um, just an example from my own experience. When I was at Sandoz and was um, uh, leading some of the developments on, on uh, cyclospore and Sandimmune outside of transplant, that was the first drug for transplant, we did the first controlled MS trial, at least to my knowledge, in the late 80s. And the trial failed mainly because we didn't know what to measure and we didn't know how to measure and for how long. So just to show that same sort of experience, I mean, we can learn about mechanisms and, and proof of concept and what are the right scientific approaches, but also what are the right designs to, I mean, what a shame to have a, a, a good product or a helpful product, but have it fail in a trial because of the trial design or the trial execution. That's just unacceptable, especially in a disease where the unmet need is so huge, like Alzheimer's disease. So a, a, excellent point you make. We learn about products and proofs of concepts, but also how to conduct better and build on our past experiences. So mm -hmm. and I, think, I think also, Elliot, one thing we learned there was that uh, we went very quickly, your Biogen went very quickly from a 1B study, the prime study, into phase three. And it was as the prime study open label extension continued on that we better understood the safety uh, uh, of ARIA such that we could push the dose in the phase three study. Now, I'm all for going quickly, but the lessons we learned from Prime triggered the protocol amendment saying it's safe to push the dose higher. And that's how we got into that situation. So yes, you need to continually build on the knowledge that's coming forward to be open to it and, you know, accept the consequences that maybe, you know, had we waited with phase three or done a phase two dose finding and safety a little bit more then we wouldn't have had to have the protocol amendments, which impacted this phase three program. Well, important lessons for the future, obviously. So aside from Biogen's news, which we've talked about a fair bit, uh, can you share what you found to be some of the more exciting studies or programs that are currently underway or planned that could help expedite access to new therapies or or help complement what, what may already become available? Sure. There were lots of exciting aspects to the meeting. One um, focus was on diagnostics and biomarkers and the progress being made. And uh, we know that spinal fluid analysis or PET imaging is very important in our understanding of Alzheimer's disease, but it is not going to be the way forward too far into the future if we have a drug come to the market. How are people going to access in the large numbers who will need it? PET imaging with all of its challenges of availability and uh, 
you know, uh, tracer failure and cost. So I was pleased to hear an update on the Aptus A-beta-4240 blood test that C2N Diagnostics is developing, and they are um, uh, giving an accuracy for the blood test for diagnosis of Alzheimer's at about 86% and are able to increase that accuracy to 90% when they add APOE status and age into their modeling methods. And they're continuing to refine their methods. So they think their accuracy will be even greater. They're moving towards commercialization. We may be about one to two years from having a blood test to diagnose Alzheimer's disease. That will be a game changer. Um, Roche is also uh, developing something they call the Neuro Toolkit, and that is um, an evaluation of Alzheimer's biomarkers in the spinal fluid, but a much more comprehensive panel than what we get so far. So when we send the patient's spinal fluid to um, one of these labs now for Alzheimer's biomarkers, we can get amyloid levels and tau levels. But there are a whole host of other important biomarkers that might inform diagnosis stage of disease and might also be important in assessing whether a drug intervention is working uh, for a drug program or for individual patients in the future. So markers of inflammation, markers of neurodegeneration, so whether cells are dying in the brain or inflammatory response is happening. So this is a broader um, a toolkit now that is under development. And another thing on the diagnostic side, there were many things, but just to highlight another thing is we now have with uh, what Yale um, School of Medicine is developing, an opportunity to assess synap synapses, the density of synapses, the connections that are so vital between brain cells uh, with a ligand or a tracer that can be used with PET imaging. It's called SV2A. It's a PET tracer under development, which will give us a direct measurement of synapse loss as opposed to estimating this by a glucose PET scan or something else. So our, our methodology, our tools are getting more and more refined. We need these precise tools. And, uh, and that was a hopeful uh, side of the uh, conference. And then in terms of new treatment approaches, um, there were several different talks uh, bringing forward innate immunity and anti-inflammatory mechanisms, which may be important in dealing with that particular aspect of Alzheimer's disease, which has long been ignored. We've been focusing on amyloid and more recently on tau, but some believe that the immune system is dysfunctional and one could look at Alzheimer's disease as a disease of innate immunity dysfunction. Uh, so several companies, Elector is one of them, uh, developing a, uh, an antibody uh, that would activate TREM2, which is a compound that would then uh, allow activation of uh, support cells in the brain, uh, microglia that could engulf amyloid. There are others looking at the, um, the proteases or enzymes that uh, a bacteria, an oral bacteria can cause that get into the brain. Um, some of our listeners may have heard of P. gingivalis or periodontal disease 
perhaps contributing to Alzheimer's disease. We have lots of bacteria in our mouth, in our gums, and it actually gets into the brain. Uh, and this has now been demonstrated. And there is a drug under study now, a small uh, molecule that can uh, counter this um, inflammatory response. So I think these are very exciting. We need lots of different approaches to this complex disease we call Alzheimer's disease. And seeing that there are new approaches, new molecules, and particularly for me, the innate immune system uh, is probably very much involved in Alzheimer's disease. So I'm happy to see these programs move, move from uh, either preclinical to phase one or phase one now to phase two. So, so Sharon, I mean, it, just to sum that up really, really quickly for our sort of, you know, um, non-scientific listeners, it sounds like what you've said is one um, earlier on, improvements in clinical trial design, learning from the aducanumab experience and others so that our, our trials don't fail because of trial design or execution. Secondly, much better diagnosis, hopefully early on, and I guess related to that staging of the D. So we have patients who are fairly similar stage, relatively homogeneous, if you like. That's always a good thing for a clinical trial. And then, of course, with you know this renewed excitement and positivity, a look at not only underlying root cause therapies, like attacking toxic oligomers of amyloid more selectively, like we're doing at Promise, but other mechanisms that when added together could really make a difference over the lifespan of the disease, over the chronic, you know, decade or decades that the disease can, you know, once it's established, can present. So this really is exciting. Um, so, you know, that's, that's really a good thing to hear. So just switching gears and, and maybe back to the Toronto Memory Program, anything exciting you're working on, specifically Toronto Memory Program, whether it's drug therapy or, or other, you know, social or patient aspects, what if, what's got you excited at Toronto Memory Program for the coming year or two? Well, quite a few things, Elliot. Thanks for asking. But one thing in particular I'd like to mention is we are collaborating with a biotech company called ReadySpec to develop a retinal scan. So that's an, a, a photograph of the eye that could be used for diagnosis, early diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And uh, that itself could be a game changer. It might be less expensive then a blood test, it might be more readily accessible. I think the end game idea would be that when you go for your eye check uh, and you have the regular pictures of your eye taken, these um, ReadySpec system pictures, which use a hyperspectral uh, technology, would be able to see the amyloid that's in the brain, but see it in the retina or the back of the eye. So we are involved in a validation study, meaning that um, people who have already had PET scans that show amyloid or spinal taps that show uh, amyloid accumulation in the brain uh, are undergoing the retinal scans, and we're looking at what the accuracy is. Um, so, so far, that study is going very well. And from the, the patient participant standpoint, they love it. These, these are individuals who have gone through PET scans or spinal taps, and they say, this is a no-brainer, having a picture eye. Right. <laughs> so, some of them like that better yeah. than the idea of a blood test. So we'll keep marching forward with that. Uh, it's very interesting, the whole idea that the back of the eye is really the front of the brain, and you can see some of the changes that go on in the brain itself, you know, very accessibly in the back of the eye and non-invasively. So we'll, we'll see where that leads us. 
Uh, we've also been involved in the generation program of studies, which was a prevention uh, program for people with a risk factor related to ApoE4. So this is a, uh, a variant of the ApoE gene. Uh, the ApoE4 variant causes a greater risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And we were looking for cognitively normal individuals who might want to participate in a prevention study. And even though the, uh, the intervention with the base inhibitor has been stopped, um, we have learned that, we, that people do want to come forward, do want to know if they're at risk and are willing to take medication uh, to prevent future Alzheimer's disease. And this is very exciting. And fortunately, even though the, the interventional part of the study has ended, um, there is a desire to keep this ApoE4 carrier cohort together and to invite them to future trials. So I think we're learning better how to do trials. We're learning that it is possible to recruit populations that we thought would be very difficult to engage. And, uh, and we'll keep moving in that direction as well. Sharon, this has been, I think, one of our most interesting and information-dense podcasts. So we really appreciate you sharing all of your wonderful knowledge and bringing back so many of the exciting things that were happening at CTAD to our audience. We'd like to end every podcast with a view into the future. So in your opinion, uh, what do you think this next year will look like for the Alzheimer's community? I think it's going to look very different. You know, is it going to be next year or the year after? Very soon, it's going to be very different. Uh, from the diagnostic side, we will have much greater access to um, uh, diagnostics through a blood test, perhaps, or a retinal scan, meaning that individuals who are now, for the most part, diagnosed by memory tests, uh, even though we have PET scans and CSF, that's not available to most individuals concerned about their memory. And they see a doctor and they have some memory tests and a diagnosis is made on that basis. That's just not good enough. It's not early enough. It's not accurate enough. So I think we are going to have accurate and accessible diagnostics for Alzheimer's. And on the treatment side, I think we're going to have treatments that go beyond treating symptoms. If aducanumab is approved, that may be the end of 2020, uh, that will launch a new era in Alzheimer's disease where we will be talking about slowing, slowing down the disease. There will be a lot more education. There will be health system changes to allow people who can benefit from aducanumab to access it. This is not a drug that you take in a pill. You will need to go to a center where you can get an intravenous infusion once a month. So there'll be a whole system change to make this available. Um, family doctors will have a greater role, perhaps in ordering blood tests and sending people on then to specialists who can order aducanumab or another disease modifying drug if it's appropriate. Uh, so I think it's going to look very different. And the, the option then, if we have the first approved drug it, that's disease modifying would be then to have head-to-head -head trials so we can get better drugs, combination studies with one approved medication and other experimental medications added in. So we'll keep building on this. And I'm hoping that with education increasing and stigma going down, we are going to feel a lot better about dealing with Alzheimer's disease. 
That is truly exciting. And um, I think it's going to be a really exciting year ahead. And certainly the tides are finally turning. Elliot and I really appreciate you joining us today. Um, as I mentioned before, we've, we've learned a lot. It's been information dense. And uh, we hope that you'll come back and join us again soon. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. It was a pleasure. <laughs>